0: This is Tanakh-Kaz. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 173. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 79 through 82 and follow with some thoughts about artifacts and their appropriate historical period, or perhaps not. Psalm 79, an Asaph Psalm starts on a mournful tone, bemoaning the conquest of the land of Israel, the befouling of the temple, and the sacking of Jerusalem. Quote, they have spilled their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is none to bury them. Now, one would expect the poet to launch into a plea to God to avenge the dead and repay the ruin for ruin, which he does. But it's mixed with another plea. For forgiveness, quote, help us, our rescuing God, for your name's glory, and save us, and atone for our sins, for the sake of your name. Oh, and uh, while you're at it. Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and they hear the lamentation of the women. Psalm 80 is divided conveniently into three stanzas, with each part ending with a recurring chorus, quote, O God, bring us back, and light up your face, that we may be rescued. Part one asks for God to reveal God's self and their glory and lead the people to salvation. This stanza is directed at the Northern Kingdom specifically, especially in its weakened state. Why? Well, part two takes this up because the situation is bad, and it's bad because God is punishing the people and refusing to hear their prayers. Quote, you fed them bread of tears and made them drink triple measure of tears. But the poet is hopeful that God will relent... And as the chorus states, light up God's face that we may be rescued. Part three is a parable with an explanation attached. The people of Israel are like a vine out of Egypt, planted, tended, with roots deep in the soil, growing up so prodigiously that it fills the land. But all of that comes to an abrupt end. Why did you break through its walls so all passersby could pluck it? The boar from the forest has gnawed it, and the swarm of the field fed upon it. It seems that God, despite the initial loving care, has grown neglectful, so as the chorus reiterates for a third time, bring us back. Psalm 81 takes us to a new moon celebration with song, beating of the drum, the playing of the lyre, and the blasting of shofar, but there can be no celebration of the festival without rules to establish the day and its importance. And these rules go back to, quote, when he sallied forth against Egypt's land. That experience was evocative for many reasons, beginning in slavery, being spoken to in a foreign language, but, quote, I delivered his shoulder from the burden, his palms were loosed from the hod. A hod is a long-handled box for carrying bricks or mortar. I had to look that one up. Up Through the desert, tested at Mariba when thirst gripped the people and then the covenant and monolatry, that is worshiping only one God and rejecting all others. But God reminds us, quote, My people did not heed my voice, and Israel wanted nothing of me. But like the poet, God remains hopeful that the people will eventually figure it out. You figure it out. You figure it out. 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 Figure it out like the judges in Psalm 82 who sit on the bench and pervert justice quote do justice to the poor and the orphan vindicate the lowly and the wretched free the poor and the needy from the hand of the wicked save them and so the poet turns to God and asks God to judge the earth because quote you hold in estate all the nations and on that insistent note here endeth the lesson I was watching Ben-Hur the other day as part of a Charlton Heston binge. You maniac! You blew it up! Ah, oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Okay, that was from Planet of the Apes, but Heston really doesn't have a banger like that in Ben-Hur. Anyway, that's not the point. I really didn't expect Hollywood sword and sandal epics to be historically accurate. You know, like making sure there was no lycra on set because there was no lycra during Roman times. But some of the anachronisms in that picture were egregious. During the climactic chariot race, there's a shot where you can actually see a VW Beetle, and you can plainly see the tracks from the camera truck in the sand of the Circus Maximus. And this wasn't by design. Someone didn't say, okay, in this next shot, when the camera swings around, let's see if we can squeeze in the VW. Even in a more modern film like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I've alluded to many times in Tanakhkast, there were those shots, you know, portraying Indy's progress in his travels with a world map and a little plane moving across it with a bold red line indicating the flight path. Well, if you look at the map closely, you know, yes, Nepal and Egypt are where they're supposed to be. But in 1936, there is no Thailand and there is no Jordan. Anyway... We all know an anachronism when we see one. VW Beatles and Roman chariot races don't share the same space or the same time. The former is clearly out of time. But what do you call it when something that shouldn't be in the first century CE or the 21st century CE mysteriously appears? There is a term for that. It's called upart, an out of place artifact, like the Antikythera mechanism. This mechanism was pulled from the Mediterranean in 1901 off the coast of the Greek island Antikythera, which gave it its name, and it was identified as containing a gear a year later. The instrument is believed to have been designed and constructed by Greek scientists sometime between the 3rd and 1st century BCE. Since 1902, the mechanism was x-rayed and scanned and imaged and it turns out that it actually has 37 gear wheels and that it can follow the movements of the moon and the sun through the constellations of the zodiac. It can also predict eclipses and even model the irregular orbit of the moon where the moon's velocity is higher in its perigree than it is in its apogee. Which shouldn't really surprise anyone because the moon's irregular motion was studied in the 2nd century BCE by astronomer Hipparchus of Rhodes. I guess what's surprising is the age of this device as similar technological works reappear only centuries later during the Middle Ages in the Eastern Roman Empire and Islamic world. But works of similar technological complexity didn't reappear until mechanical astronomical clocks were developed in Europe in the 14th century. So existence of this mechanism in the 2nd or 3rd or 1st century BCE leaves some folks scratching their heads. Could the Greeks have figured out how to assemble a mechanism of this complexity? Was the knowledge then subsequently lost or forgotten? Well, yes. A similar amnesia occurred around Roman concrete, The Romans used to mix lime and volcanic ash, and after packing the mixture into wooden molds, they would submerge it in seawater. The salt water would set off a chemical reaction, hydrating the lime in such a way to make it react with the ash, which ultimately formed an incredibly sturdy, solid bond, which is why many buildings constructed with what we call Pozzolan cement or Roman cement are still around today. This technique was named after the ash derived from deposits at Pozzuoli, After the Western Roman Empire collapsed in 476 CE, it seems that the method of production was reduced and ultimately forgotten for over 900 years. This technique was rediscovered only when manuscripts describing it were found in 1414. There's a whole debate about which cement is better, theirs or ours, which is better for climate change, etc. But once this manuscript was circulated, it rekindled interest in building with concrete. And between the 1300s until the mid-1700s, builders built with cement, and they, like many of their Roman counterparts, survive to this day. Like the Canal du Midi in southern France, it was built using concrete in 1670, or there are concrete structures in Finland that date even earlier from the 15th century that are still around today. But here's the thing, most purported uparts, which are not outright hoaxes, are usually the result of mistaken interpretation or simply wishful thinking. Usually much relies on an assumption that one culture or another couldn't possibly have created the artifact in question or had the necessary technology due to lack of knowledge or materials. You done messed up, A.A. Ron! And usually it's Westerners looking askance at cultures in the Americas or Africa, and no one asks similar questions about the Greeks. But anyway we do have examples of cultures figuring stuff out and then because of happenstance, losing that knowledge going forward. Now, we don't know who wrote the books of the Tanakh. We have traditions around authorship, but even questions of authorship is one that has really only preoccupied humans lately, like in the last couple couple hundred years. It seems that our ancestors were less concerned about who wrote the book and more with what was inside it. As Roland Barth wrote in his 1968 essay, Death of the Author, quote, it is language which speaks, not the author. Nonetheless, Jewish tradition identifies individuals who are behind the books of the Tanakh. And as we have said numerous times during our foray into the Psalms, Jewish tradition identifies King David as the author of the Psalms. However, even the Babylonian Talmud doesn't speak with one voice about this matter. In Tractate Psachim, folio page 117a, Rabbi Mayer, a 2nd century C.E. Mishnaic sage, says, quote, all the praises stated in the book of Psalms were recited by David. As it is stated, the prayers of David, son of Yeshai are ended. Kalu. Do not read Kalu. Read Kol Elu. All of these but subsequent discussion on that folio page dispute that identification, and some assign some of the psalms to an even earlier period. Either way... We have an odd moment in Psalm 79. Quote, in Asaf psalm, God, nations have come into your estate. They have defiled your holy temple. They have turned Jerusalem to ruins. They have given your servants' corpses as food to the fowl of the heavens, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have spilled their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is none to bury them. We have become a disgrace to our neighbors, scorn and contempt to all around us. How long, O Lord, will you rage forever? Your fury burn like fire. Nothing like this happened during David's lifetime or even the lifetime of his son Shlomo or his grandson or his great-grandson. So could it have been David who offered this cry of anguish over the destruction of Jerusalem and the despoiling of the Holy Temple? Had he written it in the future tense as a warning of what might happen if the Jews don't behave better, a graphic prophetic warning And you wouldn't even need to be a prophet to predict such a catastrophe. Judah was located between hammer and anvil, between Egypt and Assyria, or between Egypt and Babylonia. What was described could happen if geopolitics zigged instead of zagged. But it's clearly written in the past tense describing events that have already happened. This psalm could easily be used as part of a prayer service marking the anniversary of the destruction, which means, again, that the poet writes about these events as having happened in the past, as if he witnessed them himself or heard from folks who did. Some interpreters situated this psalm in the Hasmonean period with the despoiling and all, but the reference to reducing Jerusalem to ruins doesn't fit either. This carnage is reminiscent of the catastrophe of the Babylonian conquest in 586 BCE. For me, this isn't a problem. David is not the poet, or at least not the poet for this psalm, but for some who adhere to the tradition, who accept David as the author of the psalms. In total, kol elu. How does one resolve this matter? Well, medieval commentators either avoid the issue altogether or attribute the psalm to David, who wrote it under the influence of Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the ultimate retcon. Retcon, or retroactive continuity, is a literary device in which established facts in a usually fictional work are adjusted, ignored, tweaked, or just contradicted by a subsequently published work which breaks continuity with the former. Movies and TV series do this all the time. Characters that are dead in one season magically reappear in the following season with no explanation, or the immortals in Highlander are actually exiled space aliens. What the hell is even that? And let's not even get into the whole Midichlorian thing in Star Wars. That's just total bullshit, man. In short, retconning is the last refuge of a scoundrel, which, no shade to the commentators, is what the commentators did with Psalm 79. Psalm 79 clearly comes from a different historical period, but rather than confront the tradition that David was the poet, as the rabbis of the Talmud did, they entertain the notion that Psalm 79 was a divinely inspired upart. But we know what uparts are, one part wishful thinking, and one part... Total bullshit, man. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about Tanakhkast. Tell a friend about Tanakhkast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to Nachcast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning five this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 174, when we continue in Psalms with Chapters 83 through 86.